Luke chapter 15. Let me just read verses 11 through 24, and we'll get right on into into the message here. Verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Can you say amen? Now, what Jesus often did, we call them parables and what he often did was he would tell stories uh, that were really true to life It doesn't necessarily mean that the particular people that he's using as an illustration are the ones, but he would tell stories of real life situations that they could understand and relate to. And so when he's talking about sowing in a field or he's he's uh, uh, he's talking about being on on a ship and different things where he uses uh, illustrations, uh, weeding and all of that, he they they under they get it. They understand the culture. They understand the setting. And so those stories have relevance. He used those to bring some real spiritual application. No different here with these three parables here in the book of Luke. Um, The first one, which I didn't read, uh, deals with a lost sheep. It's right at the beginning of the chapter. And what he uh, talks, what Jesus talks about uh, is is a man that had a shepherd who had a hundred. And one of those hundred uh, became lost. And in that setting, it wasn't, and this is important to know, it wasn't any of the under shepherds. They all had under shepherds who was helping him care for the sheep. It wasn't one of the under shepherds that went to find the lost sheep. As a matter of fact, the shepherd will will let the under shepherds know to take care of the 99 and it would be the shepherd that will actually go and find that lost one. And when he finds that lost one, he would put that lost sheep on on his shoulder, on his back. He would make the track through the terrain, bringing that one, carrying it back on his shoulder. And when he got back to the community, he would let the other fellow shepherds know that he has found the lost one and he would want everybody to come and celebrate with him. He found the lost one and would want everybody to come celebrate. We see a similar thing with the lost coin. Here's a case where uh, we believe just from the, the, what we know about the culture, what we know about uh, the situation here, that it's a woman that's probably not very well off. 
uh, and, uh, and not, not, not married. Don't know if she had been married, but certainly not married at this time. Probably lives in a typical Palestinian home that was small. Probably didn't have any windows. If it did, maybe a small window or so. House was predominantly made out of probably some rocks and stone, uh, different elements. The floor was probably a dirt floor and maybe a few stones on the floor. She loses uh, one of her 10 coins. She could have been saving those 10 coins for whenever she got married. That would be something that she would be able to give, which did happen in that culture. Or the 10 coins could have represented, could really been all that she had saved. Each, each coin, it was a drachma. Each drachma is only worth one day's wages. So basically, all she had was less than the two-week paycheck. And out of that that she had, she lost a tenth uh, of that. And so in her anxiety, uh, the scripture tells us, or Jesus tells us what she did was lit a lamp uh, so she could see, uh, because obviously they didn't have uh, APS, thank God, they didn't have to pay that bill. So they didn't have APS. Uh, so she would light a lamp, and as she was holding this small lamp, she's sweeping the floor, hoping that she could either see the coin or she would hear the coin as she's sweeping it. Same, same ending, though. When she found the coin, she called all her neighbors to say, I have found the lost coin. Come and celebrate with me. Both of those uh, tell an ending of finding something lost and the celebration and rejoicing that comes. We see the same thing with the story that we just read with the, with the lost son. Same emphasis, rejoicing and celebration. Sheep that was returned to the flock, celebration. Coin returned to the lady's ornament or saving, celebration. Same with the son who's welcomed home. It, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. It's, it's a masterpiece of a story, actually. And I don't have the time to go into all of the nuances of it that uh, are legal nuances, cultural nuances. All of that is part of building up the story till you get to that spiritual impact. But the main part of the parable is this, that God gladly receives the repentant. That cannot be missed in this, that God gladly receives those who turn to him. The title of this message is Welcome Home. Turn to your neighbor and say, Welcome Home. I want to read to you uh, a a story that I uh, found a few few years ago. Uh, The gentleman's name, he was born... Uh, with the name, the given name of Marks Barnes. He was born with that name. Now, at the time that I found this, he was 34 years old. His name was Steve Carter. He was born in 1977, and he had no inkling that he was lost. He didn't realize that he was considered missing until July, uh, sorry, January 2011. He was actually doing a search on a missingkids.com website to look for someone else. And while he's searching this website, there is this composite drawing of what he would look like at the age of of over 30, and he sees himself. He sees himself on this website as being someone reported missing. He said a chill went down him. He was astonished that he's seen himself as the name Marks Barnes and saying he's been missing since 1977. And so what he decides to do is take a DNA test to see if he was hoping he really was Stephen Carter. And he takes a DNA test and finds out he's not Stephen Carter. He really is Marks Barnes that had been lost. 
The story of it is that uh, when he was six months old, his mother was out with him strolling in one of the uh, Hawaiian islands. The date, he said, was June 21st, 1977. Something happened with his mom while they were out strolling and uh, something just went bad. She ended up being taken to a, a psychiatric hospital. Uh, when they're out there, so the, the child, Marks, is put into some protective care. The mother never came out of that condition. So he was put in foster care and eventually, which was only 30 miles from where he was, and eventually uh, with the family and grew up with this name, Stephen Carter. By contrast, though, he had a half-sister who, was, who had a desire to find out whatever happened to him. That's how his picture got up on the missing uh, missing kids website. So it was through all of her efforts. She, she convinced some of the authorities to do a, a reinvestigation of what happened. Here comes the composite image of him. He discovers it online and he says this, if it wasn't for her looking for me, I would still be a cold case. And, and, I, and I thought about that and that kind of leads to this, to this story here that, you know, all of us are lost All of us are missing children, and we got a father that's looking for us, that's seeking us out. And what's happening here in this story is quite intriguing, uh, because here is is a man that has two sons, and it seems like he's provided well for his two sons. But one of the sons, the youngest son, goes up to the father and says to the father, I want you to give me the portion of what belongs to me. I want my inheritance and I want it now. Now, let me tell you why that's, that's not a good deal. Because of Norman, some of you know Norman lived with us, uh, was raised up here and was, uh, went back to India to plant churches. And I've been there several times, so I know how the culture works. I've even witnessed this kind of thing with my very own eyes being there. In that particular culture, it was already determined that the oldest son would always get two-thirds of the father's inheritance, whatever the father gave Uh, whatever the father gained. In this particular case, the youngest son would get a third. If he had sisters, it's, it's irrelevant in this case because nothing was left to the girls. It was a responsibility of the sons to take care of the girls until they got married. So in this particular case, the father had the two, uh, two sons, one gets two third, the other gets a third, but they don't get their inheritance until the father dies. When the father dies, then everything is split up. It is absolutely insulting to go to a father while he's still alive and say, I want my inheritance. I want what you are reserving for me and I want it now. Basically, what he's saying to the father is this. To me, I don't want no relationship with you. You are just as soon to be dead to me. Give me everything that you have prepared for me. Give it to me now and I'm going to live on my own. I don't want a relationship with you. I don't need a relationship with me, with you. As far as I'm concerned, you're dead to me. Give me what's mine and go. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've witnessed it myself. Whenever that happens in that particular culture, especially in the villages, usually the father reacts with some physical action and the son is humiliated before everyone for making that kind of action and statement. The whole village recognizes it and the father is then put out as an outcast and completely uh, taken out of the will. Astonishingly, the father grants him his request. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, that's not so easy. In our culture, we may have some assets and we may also have some cash, and it's not as hard sometimes to divide things up. In that culture, mostly all of their assets, all of their wealth was in agriculture or land or livestock or those different kind of things. In this, so this setting, and, and actually I don't have time to go into the language, but the words there let you know that the father actually liquidated a third of everything he had so that he could grant the request to the son. So the son can leave and go off on his own. Now, when you follow this, you you recognize something. It doesn't take long for the son to have a downfall. As a matter of fact, the scripture says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took his journey and he went off on a far country and he squandered his property in reckless living. Most of the time, people call this story the prodigal son. I have a thought about that, but they use it for the word prodigal means extravagant living, spending it all. And that's exactly what he does. This is the result of the son's independence. He makes a decision that he wants to be independent. And in this case, independent meaning from the father. Now, all of you know, there is an independence that we want people to have that we think is good. We believe, we raise children to become independent. Not not away from us in relationship, but not dependent upon us in relationship. There's an independence that we want them to have. Is that that my, my, yeah, Uh, I got into somebody's Kool-Aid, I think. But yeah, we want them to have a certain independence. I always think it's good for men and women to have a certain independence. I'm not talking about outside of marriage and I'm not talking about outside of relationship. But you don't want to be in a situation where you're codependent on the person that you've invested all of your heart, mind, and soul with. There's a certain independence that all of us have where we're not dependent on the others and yet still in a healthy relationship. Y'all, y'all good with that? I think a whole lot of folks won't start their own business, even though they got all of the uh, tools and all of the properties and all of the mindset and all the resources, and they, re- they, they stay dependent on someone who's giving them a check every week instead of becoming a little bit independent and starting their own business. So I think independence is good and can lead to good things. But independence for many is not just an emancipation from one that you want to be from. Unfortunately, in this case, the independence for this young man is an independence from somebody that he actually needs. When you understand the whole nuance that the father in this story represents God, I want you to see what the boy is saying. Basically, the boy is saying if you put, and it's easy for us sometimes to put ourselves in, in, to, or to look at this story and see what the boy did and shake our head. But, but think about people that you know and people that you love that have pulled themselves out of relationship with God or not in relationship with God at all or even put ourselves in that situation before we came to know the Lord. Many of us had a mindset of independence. The scripture even says that we lived alienated from God. And when you think about what this boy has done, and if you put the situation in place that if indeed, which the father does represent God, what the boy is basically saying is, I want everything God can give me, but I don't want relationship with him. 
I want everything that God can provide in this life and this world, but I don't want to have anything to do with him. As a matter of fact, God may be alive, but he's dead to me because I don't need him. I don't want to be around him. And let me just tell you something. You'll come to the place to realize that when, when, when you, you, yeah, you'll come to this place to realize that Jesus is all you need when Jesus is all you got. Am I talking to the right church? And so he wants to be free from him, but look at the downfall. I I believe Billy Graham said it best. He said, life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It ain't got no point. No point. Without God, life is is an endless hope. Without God, life is a hopeless end. We are designed to have a relationship with him. Here's what Jesus said in John 15. I am the sprouting vine and you're my branches. As you live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you. But when you live separated from me, you are powerless. That's the word of the Lord. We're designed to be in relationship with God. His independence that led to his downfall also led him to a bad condition. The scripture goes on to say there, as we read, that he was in, he, he, the place where he's at was severe famine. Now, mind you, he is, he's a Jewish young man living in a Gentile setting. So, so he tried to get jobs, but because of the cultural distinctions and differences, he couldn't even get a job. Famine has hit. He's wasted all of his money. He's hungry. He's got no place to go. So the scripture says he ended up taking a job feeding the hogs with a hog farmer, which is so counter to what Jewish people would do. But he said he was so hungry that he would have even ate what the pigs ate. Nobody was giving him anything, so he took that job. Listen, this is not the life that the father intended for this son. It's not the life that God had intended for us. Imagine and lean in on this. People that you know, people that you love, when you see them in certain conditions, you know that it's not the life that God intends. All of us can witness too. Maybe we've been in situations and living life in certain manners and you come to the place to realize this is not the life God has for me. Living alienated from God or independent from God. You can always expect your downfall. You can always expect your conditions to put you in a place that is not the best place that God has for you. It may be different for different folks. It may be different ways that that's expressed. It may be different manners in which that's lived out. For some, you know, it may be overwhelming promiscuity, or for others, it's addictions. For others, it's just all kind of immoral uh, failures and moral compass off off track. For others, it's just uh, no, uh, just laziness and can't uh, just have no initiative in life. Whatever, there may be different ingredients in there. Uh, but, but there's some things that are common. It, it's it's kind of like this to me. Listen, it, every good Italian food is going to have certain ingredients. It, cert, every Italian food is going to have pasta, olive oil, crushed tomatoes, and garlic. All good, yeah, amen. All good Italian food is going to have that. All good Mexican food is going to have some chili, some beans, some cilantro, or avocado. If it don't got that, don't tell me it's good Mexican food. It's going to have that. Good Indian food, all of it is going to have coriander and cardamom and cumin. It's going to have that if it's good Indian food. Let me tell you some common ingredients that we're going to have if you, have, if you come to a place of being independent from God and has hit this place of a, of a downfall and condition. Let me tell you the ingredients that are always in a life that's separated from God. One is hopelessness. Let me tell you what Ephesians 2.12 says. You have no hope without God in this world. Without God, you have no hope. That's an ingredient that's in everybody's life that's separated from God is hopelessness. 
Another ingredient in everybody's life without God is purposelessness. And I know purposelessness may not be a word, but I went to Yuma High School. I'm a criminal. I can make up words. It's purposelessness. Purposelessness. And this is what the scripture says. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Without the Lord, there's going to be purposelessness. False expectations is another ingredient that's in the life of somebody separated from God. Listen to what the Bible says. The world is fading away along with everything that people crave. It's all fading away. Whatever people in this world is craving, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. False expectations for those separated from God and poor foundation, just a poor foundation, a life built on something that's not stable. Jesus said himself that anyone who hears my teachings and ignores them, it's foolishness. They're like a person who built their house on the sand. When rains comes and floods comes and winds comes, it beats against that house and it will collapse with a mighty crash. Those ingredients are in every life that's separated from God, hopelessness, purposelessness, false expectations, and poor foundation. God is the only one that can counter that. He's the only one. One of my favorite books of the Bible to read is the book of Job. I think the theology in Job is as good as any book in the Bible almost, excluding maybe, maybe Romans but, and Ephesians. But listen to what, what Elihu said when he was talking to Job. He said, listen to this. And he's talking about all of us. God is leading you away from danger to a place free from distress. He's setting your table with the best food. God is constantly leading us out of those places of distress, constantly wooing us. Some translations actually use the word wooing, that God is wooing us out of those places of danger and distress and bringing us to a place of goodness. That's the God that we serve. And that leads to the final thing about the son that we see. We saw his downfall and his condition, but we also see his recovery. We see his recovery because the scripture says here, and the New Living says it this way. We read it where it says that he came to himself. The New Living says when he finally came to his senses, when he finally came to his senses, he said, even at home, my, the hired servants got enough food. Even at home, they're, they're, not, they're not dying of hunger. Here I am dying of hunger. He says, I will go to my father. I love this because the word that he uses here when come to senses, it's the word erkomai. And it means this. It means, it means that you come to a place where you can assess the situation. It, it can be a, a natural phenomenon or a, some kind of crisis or like coming up on the scene of a car wreck or, or whatever, but an event in your life. But you come to a place and you can assess the situation. And it's then at that moment that you recognize, I got to do something. I got to take action. This fella had an Urkamai moment. He came to a place and looked at his situation and said, oh my, I need to do something different. I'm I'm here to tell you, every one of us need an Urkamai moment. We need a moment in our life where we can assess the situation and see this needs to be better. This can be better. Something I can do to make this better. That's what this fella realized. I, I love the fact that it says it came to his senses. Somewhere down the line, he recognized his rebellion against his father had led him to a place of almost madness, a place of of insanity. It it reminds me of a story in the the Old Testament with the king by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon uh, in like 600 BC. He went a little bit into the 500s, but, but early 600 BC, he was the king of Babylon. He was the king that the Lord used when he wanted to discipline the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had become rebellious against God. They were no longer keeping the Sabbath. They weren't doing the things that God wanted them to do. They were far from keeping the law and the Ten Commandments. And the Lord rose up Nebuchadnezzar and said that he was going to rise up a king that wasn't, that was a king that was not one that was uh, committed or had an allegiance to God. He was going to bring up a foreign king and that foreign king was going to come into the land and he was going to conquer and he was going to take captive all the nation of Israel, which Nebuchadnezzar done. God also blessed Nebuchadnezzar, though, during that time to really be a great visionary. He built a great nation of Babylon. You've heard about, maybe you've heard about the hanging gardens of Babylon. At one time, it was one of the eighth, uh, seventh or eighth wonders of the world. So he was used in so many ways. He just kept expanding his kingdom. He was wise. He was young, but he was wise. One of the prophets that was in the land with him was one named Daniel. And there was a time when, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a, of a great image. And you can read this in Daniel uh, chapter 4. He had a dream of, a, of this image. And, he, and, and the dream troubled him uh, because of the ending of the dream. It looked good. Everything looked good. This image was great, fantastic. But this image came to a fall. And so he called all of his wise men and asked them, can you tell me what this dream means? And none of them could. Somehow or another, he got word that Daniel could. And Daniel came in. And, and he laid out the dream to Daniel. And Daniel told him, he says, you know, God has blessed you. You are a great king, a great leader. And, and you, you, you've amassed a whole lot. The kingdom has expanded and grown and et cetera. And it's going to keep growing. But he said to Nebuchadnezzar in so many words, but if you don't recognize that it's God that's done these things, there's going to be a great fall for you. There's going to be a great fall. About a year later, I believe the scripture says in, in Daniel chapter 4, about a year later, everything had, had amassed just as, as uh, Daniel had prophesied. Things was great. But one day, Nebuchadnezzar walks out to his palace. And the scripture says he looks over his palace and looks over his kingdom from his palace. And he says, look how great of a kingdom that I, Nebuchadnezzar, have built. I, Nebuchadnezzar, had built. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar said that, he was struck with something. Immediately, the scripture says he becomes to look like a beast. If you want to see what he looked like, it's described in, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 4. He became a beast that crawled out of his kingdom. He had talents like, a, like, a, uh, like an eagle and had eagle's feathers on, but he could walk on all fours like a beast. His whole kingdom sees him, crawls out like a beast out in the ground and out in the fields. Seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was out in that field, crawling around because he decided that he would be independent from God. But I want you to hear what these verses says about Nebuchadnezzar. This is chapter four, verse 34, and I think this is going to be on the screen. Listen to this. It said, after this time had passed, Nebuchadnezzar's writing this. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned. 
Somebody better hear this. I'm telling you right now, if you think you can live your life and you keep looking this way and don't look up to this, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to live a life of madness and you're going to live a life of insanity. You will become insane unless you look up to God. He said, when I looked up to heaven, my sanity returned. And watch this. When he got his sanity back, I praised and worshiped the most high. I honored the one who lives forever. This is a man who didn't have a relationship with God. He preaching now his rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal all the people of the earth are nothing compared to our God he does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth no one can stop him or say to him what do you mean by doing these things when my sanity returned to me so did my honor and my glory and my kingdom check this out he goes back into the kingdom as a man now my advisors and nobles sought me out I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than than before now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven can you say amen when you get your senses back when you get your sanity you can call on the almighty almighty God and here here is this young man's issue now he gets his senses back he gets his sanity and he realizes things are better for him at home but mind you he's insulted his father He's done something that nobody in that community, in that village does. He does something that would absolutely have him ostracized. He's out of everybody's sight now and out of everybody's mind. But here is the issue. He realizes, though, the best place for him is home. He realizes the best place is back in the care of his father. But his mindset is, I cannot go back as a son because of everything that I did. But, but I want to go back home. He didn't know what his father would do, but he made a decision. He wanted to go back home. Here's where the whole point of the story comes in. Because Jesus started out this parable at the beginning, letting people know, the, the tax collectors and the sinners that he was meeting with, he was letting people know, the Pharisees and the religious folks, these are the people that I love. These are the people that I want in relationship. The scripture is real clear to us that Jesus received sinners. Can you say amen? He seeks and saves those that are lost. Can you say amen? Christ came to save sinners, and we know that every one of us are the chief sinners. So here comes this young man back home. And and the scripture tells us he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what was going to take place. But on this particular day, the father looks out and he sees him. Now, the father could have had a whole lot of thoughts about saying, here comes this rascal. Here comes this no good dude who's taking a third of my stuff. He bet not step foot on this property. That's what he could have said. He could have looked out and told his, told his other servants, go get that dude before he even gets over here and go lock him up somewhere or tell him, don't even come back. But that's not what the father did. As a matter of fact, the scripture said the father had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. And let me tell you something about this culture. In that culture, now you know they wore long robes and stuff. They had the long robes on. In that culture, it was okay for women to run. It was okay for children to run, but men were so honorable that they never ran. But when this father saw his son, the scripture said he's had compassion. Now, now he could have sent somebody else to get him, but not this daddy because he loved his son. The scripture says he strapped up that robe. He pulled that robe up and done what no other father would do. He pulled that robe up and he started running for his son. Now, somebody in the, in the village might have said, what are you doing? You running up to that rascal? But that's my son. They said, but he, he, he insulted you. That's my son. But you don't want him back. That's my son. I love my son. 
and I'm going to get my son. And I'm going to love my son. And the scripture said he wrapped him up and he kissed him and he said, bring everything else that we can give him because this is what he said. This is my son. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. I'm here to tell you, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what you've been through, but I'm here to tell you, my God is looking out for you and he's strapping it up, man. He's coming after you and he's telling you, welcome home. Let me tell you this. You can stand. I'm wrapping this up. Let me tell you this. Home is not where you sleep. Home is not where you lay down at night. Home is not where you eat your food. Home is not where you kiss your wife, kiss your babies, and kiss your husband. Home is where God is. Where God is is home. That's where there's peace. That's where there's joy. That's where there's love. That's where there's always somebody saying, welcome prayer team you can come I'm done I'm done listen I'm not gonna make no long altar call don't need it if you need Jesus you can come right now I'm telling you the father's got compassion on you and he's saying welcome home if you know Christ and you walking out of relationship somebody here needs to hear this the father is saying welcome home welcome home it's a safe place it's a good place It's a place where the presence of the Lord is. But Jesus is telling you, welcome home. If you're walking out of fellowship, you can come on home today. Jesus loves you. The praise team, they're going to take us into a praise. Those of you that need to go, you can go. Those of you that need Jesus, come get Jesus. Those of you that want to come home, come on home. Christ is here. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, for loving us. We thank you for the example we see of this dear father who really is the star of this story, who shows us the compassion of you and the love of you and the grace of you and the mercy of you. It's because of your grace and because of your mercy that we're saved. And we thank you for it. And Lord, I pray whoever is at the sound of my voice that needs to hear you say, welcome home, that they'll hear it. Whoever's walked away from you, they'll hear you say, welcome home. Whoever's not sure they can trust you, they'll hear you say, welcome home. If they're, if they're afraid of you, I hope they hear you say, welcome home. If they got any reason, Lord God, to doubt, let them hear, welcome home. Because you love them. You love them. Father, we thank you. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. May the people of God shout amen.